0: Welcome to Enneagram Mapmakers, charting the unexplored interior landscape of the ego with Chris Stewart.
1: Welcome to this episode of Enneagram Mapmakers. Today my guest is Marion Gilbert, and I, I have to say this, there is no one who has shaped and, and impacted my life more than her. Marianne's a, a healer, and I mean that in every way. For, for over 40 years, she's been practicing physical therapy. Originally from, from the Netherlands, Marian, even as a, as a small child, knew that, that there was something about her that was viscerally and, and, and sort of somatically hardwired to her energetic experience of self. Today, she's really recognized as, as a leader in her field because of her extensive training in, in craniosacral therapy, somatic emotional release, and, and trauma resolution. And she brings all of this into how she works with and, and teaches the Enneagram. Now, some of y'all who who know me know that I I, I generally have a hard time crying. And of course, I will not, if I can help it, ever share my tears or shed those publicly. But every time I would would be invited on a panel that Marion would lead, she would have me, within minutes, an awful slobbering mess, just devastated and and broken. And and really, I would say, even though I've had great therapists over the years, like some of those sessions with her, we're life-changing in, in some of the most profound aspects and 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 with some of the most lasting impacts when you're with marianne you you feel it and the and the gentle way that that she actually gets about this excavation of essence um this real sort of surgical way of 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 taking bits of our psyche out and extracting that with us and for us so that we can have a, a clear sense of uh, of where we're limited, where we're constricted, where we're blocked, or where we're stuck, is is, is really one of one of the most profound gifts that she's had, and, and like I said, one of the most profound teachers I've ever ever been with. I'm an Enneagram Type Eight, and, and of course we're in our bodies, and 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 for some of us who are who are dominant in eight, we we resist sort of the the playing along, even in in some of the workshops and trainings that I've been a part of. But I think what Marion does is, is she actually helps when when we do bring this into our body realize what it's actually sort of saying on a level that we generally don't hear that we generally don't perceive and and, and so even sort of on a, a cellular level I, I'm experiencing my own resistances I'm experiencing where I store my my somatic stressors and and, and where I I park in my own body. Um, the aspects are, are of what's unresolved in, in in me being truthful or compassionate or loving with myself. This is an incredible contribution to to the larger conversation because what what Marianne is is getting at is how type structure is is really less about personality and it's more about life force. It's more about how we breathe into the love that we're constantly offered in every present moment and, and how that shapes who we're be calming and, and, and so there's something that's fresh in this but but there's something that that's urgent there's something that's necessary there's something that, that that's healing and human in all of this i, I would say marion was the missing puzzle piece in, in my own evolution of growing to to understand what the enneagram had to offer me as well as my own work with this on on a, on a, on, a, on a spiritual personal communal and professional professional level what she she brought and, and and when she showed up in my life, it, it was right on time because i mentioned this several several times and in several spaces. But but many of us have heard that the enneagram is a psycho spiritual character structure tool, and I think we we call it psycho spiritual because of course it was Claudio Naranjo, the psychoanalyst, who framed enneatype with kind of psychological language, and then it was the Jesuits who who kind of release this into the world and and so when you bring that that mental health overlay and when you bring that 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 spiritual component overlay of course you would frame this as psycho spiritual but of course we also know that the enneagram is a somatic tool and and there's very few people right now that are at least visible there's very few people right now that that have the kind of accessibility to, to bringing their work forward that draws into this somatic sort of Body intelligence-driven way of of learning and working with the enneagram, and, and I think Mariona is at, at the front of this line, and I think she really is the the great thought leader and, and culture shaper for for where this will go. The other thing I love a, a, about Mariona is, is she's a healer, and and I mean that on so many levels. Her holistic approach to to introducing the enneagram is, is for our healing and our. Ongoing inner transformation, which is is what will fundamentally and ultimately heal the world, and and I love it because Felina, my wife, always says that to the extent that we are transformed, the world will be transformed, and and so in this invitation for for the wholeness of who we are, the 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 rejecting the fragmentation of all the aspects of self that want to lay claim to the whole. Marion reminds us to, to to bring this back together and and to root it in love. And as a healer, um, I, I'll attest to this every every time I've been with her, every time I've been around her, every one of her workshops and trainings I've gone to, I, I leave changed. And I, I can mark these changes in my own life. It's it's not behavioral changes. These these aren't sort of um sort of little pencil marks on on the wall of I I'm I'm getting taller and I'm growing up. It's no, I'm actually a different person. But I think what Marianne reminds us is we're not becoming a different person. We're remembering the person that we always were. We're remembering the person that we were designed to be. And in that there's such compassion and, and there's such freedom. So brace yourself. What you're about to experience is more than simply a conversation. It's something that, that will viscerally impact you and has the potential to change your life. So here's my conversation with Marianne. So Marianne, thank you so much for being willing to be part of this conversation. It is honestly a huge, huge honor to have you included in this podcast and and, and one of the conversation partners for this series. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Chris, for inviting me to be part of the conversation. I think it's a great initiative that you're bringing into into the equation of the Enneagram.
1: So can you tell the folks who might not know about your work, a little bit of background on you and, and what you're up to? Anything to sort of fill in the gap before we roll up our sleeves and get into the conversation here?
0: Yeah, so I became a certified Enneagram teacher in 2005 and with the Narrative Enneagram. And um, I was very taken by the impact it had on my understanding of reality, actually. And also, it was a great addition to, you know, my spiritual path that I was already on, as well as, you know, working with people in the healing uh, department. And, you know, for a long period of time as a physical therapist here locally in Nevada City, California. And, um, I just realized that the obstacles to healing were the same as the obstacles to any kind of um, notion of what reality at large actually is meant to be. So it was a beautiful uh, synthesis or a bridge, so to speak, between the, the human realm and the psychological information. And the more spiritual awareness that I had come to, and then working with people in their bodies, I was able to develop um and highlight the somatic which means physical instinctual um heritage that our brain comes with first and foremost, and I begin to fill in the map um, of that physical aspect of our behavior and our way of receiving and perceiving reality.
1: I actually think this is one of the things that you've gifted this larger community that's so crucial, that's so important. You know, I was taught that the Enneagram was a psycho-spiritual character structure tool. Mm -hmm. But if there's these three centers and the body center is one of them, so the somatic piece seems to be missing. So when you begin to bring this into the larger conversation, how was it received?
0: Um, you know, in the narrative, there was definitely a, a certain amount of, uh, opening and receptivity to that. And at the same time, you know, there were certain words that were not, um, being able to be used, like energy or things that had anything to do with a more, uh, non-scientific or you know, non-reality based, you know, um, con- you know, content. So that was difficult, but I think that the openness of the um, of the narrative to want to come up with a method to work with relaxing, you know, the type structure and releasing some of these obstacles, you know, allowed us to uh, collaborate. Uh, between Helen Palmer and Terry Saraceno and myself, as well as David Daniels, you know, to really uh, begin to see what was really here in the physical realm that was actually at the root of some of that reactivity that we're always, you know, come up against, you know.
1: So, Marianne, do you consider yourself a healer or or an energy worker with, with what you've set out to do?
0: Well, you know, that's... I wouldn't really call myself that as a, you know. I, I would more say I work with facilitation of healing and energy um, because I don't really feel I'm the owner of that. You know, so if you call yourself a healer, then... Uh, There is some kind of a subject, it's a subjective relationship and, you know, healing happens all the time, right? And energy is moving all the time and is expressing itself all the time. So, I find myself just having been interested in, you know, perceiving that in people and how they block that, you know, life force or that energetic flow in their being that then gives rise to you know, uh, partial you know, observation of the truth and partial reality. And these lenses of perception that we talk about in the Enneagram, you know, we're, we're very f- well fleshed out in the mental center and we're very well fleshed out in the heart center, in the emotional center. But in the body center, you know, the only thing that was really developed at the time was the mentioning of instincts. And then more in relationship to the behavior that occurs and how that expresses itself in a horizontal way. And that means out in, out into the world that has more of a hunter gatherer's point of view of the instincts. And I was more interested in the somatic structure that was organizing itself for the, f- Soul sake of survival as a separate human being that is opposing you know the spiritual reality if you look at it superficially, so to understand that that one has a total different function and than the other is really where it it becomes important to begin to embrace that paradox and and how do those two realities come together
1: so can you talk a little bit? about your somatic awareness approach and program, the pedagogy that you use to teach this and and how you're introducing it all.
0: Yeah, I, I've come up with a a system where it becomes very clear that first, before we can do any work, we need to come from the right uh, faculty of mind, so to speak. So the ordinary faculty of mind is is the perceptive lenses that are highly conditioned. And I think one of the biggest issues currently with the Enneagram work is that a lot of what's being taught is, is, um, you know, trying to use type structure to fix type structure. And that's a real problem. Because that can never occur, you know, because if you're in the limited realm, the conditioned realm, and you're trying to get to an unconditioned place, it's never going to work if you use the conditioned lens of perception. So there is another lens of perception in the mind that is the greater mind, and that has to do more with the inner witness or the inner observer that is purely objective. And that needs to be taught and cultivated in people before they can really start to work with the deeper way of beginning to recognize oneself and one's behavior and have a certain capacity to stay present with whatever is arising rather than reacting to it.
1: So I've actually been to a number of your workshops where you bring people onto panels and you you actually work with them like this. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing when you're helping move someone from their conditioned sense of self to the unconditioned, essential nature? What's going on? What are you looking for in the soul? Or what are you looking for in terms of receptivity?
0: Well, my my great objective in working with people is, is meeting them where they are. You know, so if you meet a person where they are, you already, um, you know, not facilitating their resistance right so wherever people start is where I will join them and then I will ask them to you know become present to what is actually what they're actually saying and where that is actually occurring in their own being so that is a pretty um, what I would call a radical you know shift from how you normally conduct a conversation more from a mental, emotional, psychological point of view or intellectual point of view or philosophical point of view into, you know, where is that perception actually arising inside of your being? And that comes from my understanding and working with people for 40 years, you know, um, in the way that they have gotten sick or the way that they can't heal or you know and really working with what's the obstacle here and the obstacle largely is that people are resisting the the natural flow of the life force that's how it begins that you begin to sort of narrow your your point your perceptive lens and so, to shift the attention to where the your body is already flowing freely, is an, a move that will help you to move from a very contracted, highly aroused state to a state of feelings, you know, a certain amount of peace and well being. And that, that is not with the objective to necessarily stay there and go away from what is actually suffering and in pain. But it is a way to take a break and let the nervous system self regulate so that you can actually return to what were you, what you were upset about or what was obstructing from the point of view that you are not all that you're also you know, the peaceful, loving, compassionate being at the same time. And that is really an important piece that I uh, really got from Peter Levine's work, who is the mm, the trauma resolution person that really revolutionized, um, you know, the whole concept of how to be with trauma. He gave a big gift in understanding and what I would call now a non-dual approach to trauma. And he doesn't really use that word, but it's about paying equal attention to what is already free and liberated in you and what is already fully open to received experience and what is reactive and contracted inside of you. And if you place your attention to you know, these things equally, they actually energetically cancel each other out or they balance each other.
1: So would you say that the work you're doing or what you're trying to develop here might be considered a trauma-informed approach to the Enneagram?
0: Yeah, I I have actually um, taken it not so much to what we understand now as trauma, because that's highly a highly charged word now because it's used so much. And I don't refer to it as, as a trauma as in, you know, somebody has gone through a very intense, you know, obvious experience. It can be actually um, the birth process of coming into this world and separating from the mother in itself is an overwhelming experience for the nervous system, both for the mother and the child. There's really an amazing process that goes on there. And then it can be a simple, simple of a child that is crying for the mother in separate in a room and the mother is either not there or cannot come and the child is getting overwhelmed by their fear or their sadness of not having, you know, something close that is, that it needs for its nurturing. So you can see I'm bringing it way down into the normal sea of you know, our space-time continuum we're living in. And that we have all the time overwhelming experiences that the nervous system cannot, you know, conduct in the time frame that it has. So knowing a little bit about neuroscience, that once the nervous system becomes overwhelmed, it begins to sort of um, contain the charge in somewhere inside of you, and sort of wall it off and so that it can return back to functioning because that's instinctually important that you become, you know, present to the world around you so that you can protect yourself and, you know, make sure that you are returning or staying in a state of well-being.
1: So Mariana, I wanna go back a little bit here. You you mentioned life force, this idea mm-hmm. of life force. And I've heard you talk about this before. It's it's amazing. Help me if I'm getting this wrong here, but it's like you look at the clustering of the harmony triads less about personality or less about how personality presents and more about this idea of life force. Can you explain mm-hmm. that a little bit?
0: Well, life force is actually not an idea, it's in reality, right? Without life force, we could not lift our hand, we could not have a thought, we could not, you know, create uh, the filtering of our blood. You know, there is, there is without life force, we there is no movement possible. So, the fact that we are actually able to function is, you know, because of our life force that feeds all the processes that makes us human and makes this whole machine work, you know, for us and so that we can have a life experience. So, it lies at the core of everything we are and everything we
1: do. And then when you look at those harmony triad clusters, it's as if you look at them and see hints of life force.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, the life force flows through the whole body. And, you know, the body and the brain are largely, you know, to be divided in three main perceptive lenses. Okay. The perceptive lens of the mental lies in the neocortex And that's where the cognition happens. That's where the analysis happens. That's where the planning happens, the imagination. And that's also where we have cognitive memory. And we pretty much refer to memory as cognition, but we have tissue memory. We are finding out that actually our body, you know, doesn't really forget anything. And therefore, it's really important to understand that the majority of that lies in the sub and unconscious part of our being. So by the time we're three and beginning to say is when that cognitive memory sort of, you know, sparsely begins to happen, we're already completely formed in our predisposition of our survival patterns. So, you can see how it then becomes difficult to cognitively address, you know, our, our problems just psychologically or just mentally. It's never going to happen.
1: Would you say that the somatic storage of our memories is actually more accurate than the cognitive storage of our memories?
0: Uh, it's, a, it's just a different, it's a different lens. I would say it's more uh, complete but less accessible than the cognitive memory. And cognitive, mem- cognitive memory is also something that gets um, amplified if there was overwhelm attached to it.
1: And let's say a trial setting, eyewitness testimony is, is generally unreliable. And, and maybe that's because... Our cognitive memory is backloaded with metaphors that that we use to to fill it with meaning, right? I I do this. I fill my memories with the aspects of what I need to tell myself about what I hope or or would like to believe is true about me, or or to justify the the, the meaning of my own stories to myself. But the body doesn't lie, right? The the body holds these things, right?
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I noticed when I was working with people and even inside of myself as I was observing myself is that the story of the cognition and the cognitive memory is often opposing the story of the tissue memory. So for instance, when somebody is uh, on the table and I'm talking to them and I have my hands on them. Wherever their pain is and they are saying, Oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm fine. This is actually, you know, when I went through this situation or this particular event in which I hurt myself, you know, I'm, I'm totally resolved around it. And, and at the same time, I feel the body tighten up right? So the body is telling me actually something very different than what the mind has told the person, uh, you know, to themselves cognitively, and that happened so that they could move on and continue to function in the world. And they didn't notice that something got walled off, and they have not you know, maybe spend a lot of time, you know, inquiring into their body with what was going on. So, it's almost like a detaching or dissociation from the physical reality.
1: Honestly, your work is incredible. I, I feel like I can't even keep up with it. <laughs> and I see the impact of it in people's lives. Honestly, I'll say this, Marion, of everybody I've ever worked with or trained or studied under, it's you and and your teachings that's made the deepest and longest lasting impact on my life and my wife Felina's life too you really really are gifted well,
0: I'm really happy to hear that it's serving you know other people in their quest to awaken from this you know partial dream that we're living because that's kind of what I understood and you know, when I had to deconstruct in my type structure and I went about it in all the wrong ways, you know, and hit my head against the wall many times and saying, oops, yeah, here it is, type structure, wanting to fix type structure and how persistent that is and not listening to my body. And, you know, so that's how I have come to it myself by living through it and in all the ways that I am now um, suggesting people do not really repeat, you know, because it's very painful.
1: So do you mind if we turn this to you and talk about your own story and what that deconstruction of type structure for you looked like, maybe starting with your Ch- type and how you came to understand your type?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we share our types, you know. We're both types, type eights and... um you know the way that I came to understanding that was i uh, that I was type eight was pretty much when I went back into my childhood and in my young adulthood i I realized that i my energy was really to push the river and um. You know, as if the river needs pushing. But, you know, that was my perception, right? That somehow I needed to push the river. And, um, you know, I that would kind of be the story of I would be in the living room of my parents' house. And we lived above the business of my dad. And so people would come through the door and I would make a beeline the moment the door opened and ran into whoever's arms was there. I didn't know who they were going to be to the point of them, you know, almost not being able to, you know, catch me and stay on their feet. And, um, you know, that's that's kind of the energy that I felt as a child, you know, that it was so much live energy that at times i didn't know how to you know how to be in the midst of that i had to give it action and direction and it was really from my belly forward and i loved sports for that reason and and then i realized you know even before enneagram awareness that um pretty soon i was the one that go- was going to be targeted on the field so i chose actually um, because I didn't like the impact and uh, the contact with other people physically in, in the form of what appeared to be conflict. I did not like that. So I, I chose actually sports with a net in between so that I didn't have that problem. And I, I see that now, you know, that there was a big part of me just not really knowing how to harness that energy in any way. So... The beauty of that was that I have a, had a lot of life force to give life, but I also, you know, got a lot of feedback from my surroundings that at times, you know, I was being perceived as being too much. And to too intense.
1: I remember you once telling a story about when you were maybe a little five year old girl in a train station and 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 accessing your energy and, and and moving a crowd with it. Could you could you tell a little bit about that story?
0: Yeah, I was a little older, but you know, yes, the whole notion of playing with that energy and noticing that if I would push my energy into my belly and start pushing forward to try to catch the train, you know, people in front of me would part. They would just feel it and just move out of the way so that I could push myself through without using my hand to push anybody. So that's how I began to kind of play with that energy at that time. Yeah.
1: So when you came across the Enneagram, did it help you make sense of your relationship with that power, that relationship with conflict? Was there any resistance in that, or or did it feel like a homecoming?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, by that time, I was uh, already had a lot of things, life experience, you know, behind me. And I was already working with people for a long time. So I would say my patients really taught me how to work with that energy so that it was beneficial. You know, you just... Touch so many people and have done it now for forty one forty two years and so you know the amount of people that you touch and the feedback that you get um, taught me how to how to be with that energy in a in a little healthier way. However, when I met the Enneagram, I just really felt it was more like a big initially a big relief of understanding that it was just a pattern and it wasn't something that needed to be fixed.
1: So can you talk about that a little bit? I think there's all these ideas out there about what is type and how do we relate to type and what is fixated or set in type and can we relax into type? How do we observe type? How does that make sense? How do you make sense of that? How do you guide yourself or offer others guidance in that?
0: Yeah, I think the understanding that we're already created whole and that there is nothing missing and having had meditative experiences of that sort when I was actually in my young 20s and even there, you know, to the point where I had some huge opening experiences to the point to where even that felt like it could be overwhelming my system if I kind of was continuing to breathe into that opening. And then I realized, oh, this body is not ready to conduct that charge. It was became very clear to me. So that we need to uh, relate to our physical being with self-compassion and understanding what it's trying to do for us and that it has a great intelligence, this instinctual realm. Because without it, we couldn't really go into the world and actually do our work or explore or, you know, be curious about investigating anything. It's sort of the basis of our ability to be on this planet and be embodied. And that whole embodiment process is big to me. You know, this is my personal experience, is a way that we're being taught compassion, not only for ourselves, but that's where it starts, but therefore also allow the compassion for other people that are struggling or that are having aberrant behavior or whatever, whatever is arriving for people at any time. And just knowing that we're all on on that path of, you know, what I would call a certain amount of realization of that that embodiment of of
1: being whole so when i began my advanced trainings and and started to dip my toes in the murky waters of this larger professional community i I hate to say this because this is clearly an observation not a judgment but there were a lot of corners of this space that lacked compassion so can you talk about compassion the role that compassion plays and and how crucial is in introducing this teaching in this tradition
0: Oh, if that is not at the heart of this Enneagram work, then it can be used as a weapon. It can be used as a further stigmatization. It can be used as, you know, trying to actually highlight our differences rather than nine different paths of, you know, being more human and being connected to spirit. And it's not doing the Enneagram any service to make it just a superficial Way in which people are going to be, you know, judged for the type that, they're, that they are because each type has their equal gifts and talents and it has their equal amount of, you know, challenges to, to look at.
1: And Marianne, I really want to affirm this in every setting I've ever witnessed you in, and in every interaction I've ever had with you, you really do lead with compassion and you really do embody compassion. And I believe this. It's not the, the the words that we take away from our mentors, but it's us watching them align and embody their lives with their values and convictions. And you've done that as as well as anyone, really. The way that you live into compassion and the way that you express compassion is is, is admirable. I, I have so much respect for you, so thank you.
0: Oh, you're welcome.
1: Enneagram Map Makers will continue in a moment.
0: In Chris's book, The Enneagram of Belonging, you'll discover that knowing ourselves doesn't necessarily mean we accept ourselves. Most of us tend to curate the personality of our type, leading with the traits we perceive as positive and sidelining the traits that cause us shame. But what if it all belonged?
1: Rather than furthering our own fragmentation, what if we dared to make peace with the whole of who we are with bold compassion? The Enneagram
0: of Belonging is your guide to this essential journey. Get your copy today, wherever books are sold. I unfortunately was, tr- was trained by very good teachers and in the narrative and I really trust that method of letting the people themselves speak for themselves and to be the experts of their own type and not having an, a teacher or an authority come in and tell them how it is. And also the respect for, you know, people discovering their own type. And I know you've written a book about the sacred Enneagram and highlighting that, that it's sacred material and it needs to be treated like that. And to me that the narrative holds that pretty close, you know, and saying, yes, you can be a guide. Yes, you can be a facilitator for the the self-discovery process, but, but please don't take that away from people because that's really where, you know, people are going to understand it more deeply when it, are, when it becomes clear to them and they recognize themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. So that's amazing. You know, when you frame it like that, there's such an honoring of a person's ability to own their own story, mm-hmm. the ability of them to live into their own essence. right. It's a good reminder for some of us who weren't trained in the narrative tradition if we don't take this inward first we have no business bringing it outward there's no work we can really ask anyone else to do that we've not done ourselves you can only take someone as far as you've gone yourself
0: absolutely i mean and that's also a value that the narrative holds is to at least attempt to walk our talk and and to really come from that place so the the other thing that I want to highlight is that I think that maybe what has happened here in the big mushrooming of the Enneagram being made public, it's really good, good. A good movement that has occurred because people have more access to this wisdom tradition. And of course, the negative part is that it gets popularized. And we're forgetting sort of where that Enneagram, you know, really was rooted and how it was brought to the West. And that the father of the Enneagram is Mr. Gurdjieff, who, you know, did not necessarily, you know, in so much detail work with the filling in of the The personalities but worked with definitely the concept of that we as a species as a human species live in a state of self-forgetting and that the whole objective is to self-remember of who we really are you know that we're not our types only that that is only a small portion of us and that there's more to us than just these type structures. And that is what I see with the popularization, that everybody gets so involved with, you know, the continually highlighting the differences and this is why I don't like that type and this is why I have difficulty being with that type, it, it, you're sort of missing the point. It, the point is that we become three centered beings even though each type, you know, sits in a particular center that is the lead center. doesn't mean that the other centers are not functioning. You know, and I think we forget that and that's kind of my main Point inside of my own understanding, working with myself as well as working with the enneagram. As I bring it to the people, that the somatic lens is 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 a lens that was not fully mapped out. Which uh, you know, I feel like I've made a an attempt to really bring that in as an as an energetic. Uh, split, so to speak, between the contracted life force and the free-flowing life force. And in that, you know, it allows us to get to the root of these arising of our patterns. But it doesn't mean that it's the only thing that's important. It still has to move through the emotional patterning as well as the mental patterning. So that three-centered awakening or self-remembering is something that Mr. Gurdjieff was very clear about, you know, that we had to, you know, turn to in order to use the map of the Enneagram to do this greater work as human beings.
1: So how do you think we bring that three-centered alignment or awareness into how people nurture and nourish their spiritualities?
0: Well, the, the good news is that it's non-denominational. So you can really apply it to any kind of religious path that you choose because it's an internal, uh, organization that allows you to, to get from a reactive, conditioned response to a more relaxed, receptive you know, way in which you can open yourself to, you know, spirit, In whatever way and form you want to, um, you know, you want to see that. And again, to me, that has great promise for the world that we are, instead of fighting about religious preferences, we can just share this and add this to our prayer or contemplation or meditation practices. And it's not in conflict with the doctrines that we believe are you know, more true or less true, and therefore we go to war for it. So it has great potential for creating that more deeper, peaceful understanding that we all have different ways at which we perceive spirit.
1: Thanks for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. So you learned Enneagram um, not quite 20 years ago. Over the last 20 years, there's been quite a bit of evolution of the tradition. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about your understanding of the gift of this tradition in light of its evolution and change can you talk about your perception of how you brought this inward and allowed it to facilitate your own inner work your own transformation
0: Mm -hmm. yeah well i think the great potential here and i see that some people are teaching it in that manner and it at the end of the day, it doesn't matter at what level you want to teach it. If you want to use it for pure psychological health and well-being, um, that can be very beneficial. And if you want to use it for entering into businesses and allowing, you know, leadership teams to operate with greater understanding and the potential for reconciliation of differences, you know, that can be of great benefit you know for me personally i'm really more interested in how it can lead to really fully transforming um you know the reality as we perceive it into a greater understanding of you know how we were created to be and um you know it's if, even as a child i felt like the, the, you know, the continual thought would always come into my mind as there must be more than this. There must be more than this, you know. And it would come up in regular uh, occasions. And I believe there is an, an inner spiritual instinct, <laughs> for a lack of a better word, that we all are kind of looking for something, a life that is bringing more fulfillment than repeating and regurgitating all these same ways with which we're trying to, you know, make sense of life and expecting a different outcome. I mean, that isn't, that is not even intelligent to keep doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome, right? So the diff- difficulty here to me is to understand that the brain itself loves repetition. It loves to stay with what it has learned and what it knows. There is an inherent, you know, fear in all of us and not just for the mental times, but f- there is an inherent fear towards what's not known. And because in time and space and on the food chain, that means that, you know, some danger might be occurring. And a lot of people are not even aware that that fear is operating. Because we have emotional and intellectual, you know, adaptations so that we have made it sort of, um, you know, sort of stays hidden. And to really be with the core fear of not being loved or not belong or the core fear of life having no meaning, you know, these things are extremely deeply seated ways in which we are not getting to that the root of that fear and it's not until that gets metabolized and I'm using that word really importantly because it's not about getting rid of things and that's another thing that became very very apparent in the new age world and you know I tried it for a while okay just let it go You know, that's the slogan, right? Just let it go. And there's no way you can let anything go. It just keeps arising, right? It is, how can you let it arise and not attach to it? How can you let it arise, stay present with it, and watch it rise and fall? Because it will. Now, for that, you need to have the capacity to have some sustained attention of an inner observer that is not invested in an outcome, that can stay objective. And, you know, one of my meditation teachers says, if you can stay present with one thing in an undivided way for two minutes you are bursting out of the conditioned realm as being where you're captured inside of it. You actually burst out of it. So what does that tell you about the nature of our mind, our, our regular mind, is that it's highly distractible. And so the sustaining of that attention is a really important practice so that you can witness you know the rising and falling of the thoughts the emotions and the sensations and and therefore you don't have to react to it it's extremely liberating
1: and i think that's what we all want at the end of the day it's just why don't you think we allow ourselves to receive or why don't you think we give ourselves permission to receive the very things that we wish we had?
0: I think it's not a matter of not wanting I think it's just not realizing that reality is there because of the way our mind doesn't let us stay long enough to witness it and we can't really know what we don't know until you happen you know on it because you know that instinct to want to you know, be more embodied and be free and be, you know, realized in a way that doesn't really make you feel like you're thrown around by your conditioned mind is is there in everybody. Everybody doesn't want to suffer like that, even if they don't know
1: it. It's just a bummer that it's the pattern and the rut that so many of us fall into and then stay stuck in.
0: Yeah, and to me, that's also, you know, I believe why we're here is to learn to slow things down. Unfortunately, what we are creating is more how our mind works and we create faster and faster, you know, worlds, you know, in order to answer to it, which gets us more and more captivated. But really in my own experience, what I feel in being in a body is... You know, sometimes I feel like everything goes as slow as molasses and there is an innate resistance against that. And once I understood that, that I was resisting that and not just surrendering into that slowing down, that is when I discovered that I could actually stay with something so much longer and, and that is when I began to witness like, oh. The fear is here and I can just be with it and I can breathe around it and not into it. I'm not going into it. I'm just going to allow it, but I'm not going to join it. And that's when you're, you're becoming more primed to be able to begin to see what your body can and cannot stay with. And to learn from your body that that is having a reason why you can't stay with it. It's too big for you yet. There's too much there. So to work with the part of you that is not caught in that fear and is already free... You know, and stay there longer until it balances the other side is sort of the best kept secret, you know, of this, what I call now a more non-dual approach to, you know, to this whole conditioned dualistic split in which we are caught It's the either or piece, right? It's good or bad. It's right or wrong. There is no right and wrong. And it's good and bad. I mean, there is a whole different flavor to when you change that little word in between, right? Can you be good and bad? Because you are. Everybody is. And can you stay with that? Or do you feel that automatically? Oh, I have to be good, I have to be good, I have to get rid of the bad. That that reinforces the split. So in the type structures, that is also an aspect of what I sometimes feel is being uh, used in the teachings uh, to me erroneously is how to, how to become a good aid, you know, was my objective, right? Now I have to become a good aid that isn't really triggering people. I cannot control whether or not I trigger people. I can be mindful, but I cannot control that. And I'm going to get some reactions because I'm an eight. And so does the four, and so does the two, and so does the six. We're going to get these reactions. Can you stay with your own reaction instead of reacting to them? That's the convertible energy right there inside of you.
1: Mm, That's amazing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I just want to say what a blessing it was for me to, to discover the Enneagram because it really helped me bridge, you know, my meditative experience with my human experience. And what I love about it is that it has this deep potential to... Really bring, you know, our horizontal world of conditioned hunter gatherer, survivor kind of activity and expression, you know, in direct relac- relationship with a vertical reality that has to do with, you know, who we are in relationship to spirit and that. You know, to me, the Enneagram has that potential to really teach us how to get to that place where the horizontal and the vertical meet. And I haven't met any system that in so such a s- succinct way can actually give us not only the, the actual attributes of recognizing these two realities as not disparate, you know, uh, different, being disparate and different, disparate and different, they are actually connected uh, intrinsically and are a different expression of the whole.
1: It seems it's that space between the sacred and the profane or where the, the divine and the human meat that's actually spiritual. Yes,
0: yes. And you don't have to let go of anything. You just need to learn how to let it be and be present.
1: So, you are the first person who ever introduced me to the existential hole, that little gap at the bottom of the Enneagram between mm-hmm. 4 and 5. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it seems like type 4 and type 5 play a really important role for the rest of us, helping us connect that space between our head and mm-hmm. our heart.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then I, if you look at it, uh, right above it is the 9 holding grounding that the four and the five holding it up
1: so what's the the mythology of this existential hole where did this show up in the tradition uh what's going on in that little gap what do you think this means
0: well it's it could be seen as very simple if you look at it more from uh human beings being um given you know temporal bodies with a reality of that's impermanent, right? So the moment you're born and you know you're going to die, you know you have a, a, a finite um, time frame in which you can operate in your life with a, an existential fear that is being embedded in your being so that you can uh, react appropriately to uh, fears and and hazards and dangers around you so you have to have that existential fear in order to you know have survival mechanisms and defense mechanisms and ways in which the instincts keep you alive now in human beings You know, these existential fears are being translated up through the limbic system and also translated through the cognitive system and these memories of how we survived a long time ago, you know, are being repeated automatically. So that is what I believe that existential hole is representing is the, 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 the fear that we are going to disappear when we die. That who we are is going to be gone. And that is that feeling of, you know, dropping down into that existential here, existential hole. And the four feels it's going to dissolve in its, you know, in the core of its grief that something important has gone missing and therefore they will be abandoned and therefore they will not survive. And for the five, it's, you know, if they are really feeling that part of them that is so afraid of the, the unknown and the unknowable and the void, you know, and if they go there to the blank mind, they believe they will actually you know, disappear, evaporate. So, they are the guardians there, you know, but we have nine different versions of that, don't forget, you know. But they are really holding that very very distinctly and if you interview and facilitates fours and fives processes to know that means that you you have to go really gentle and really slow and not push the envelope because there's a lot of energy there for them to to master and to learn how to be with and learn how to balance
1: this is what's important to realize that we live beyond type mm-hmm. this is fundamentally a luminary role that these two types play for the rest of us yes to show us that way home exactly it's a huge responsibility so i'm wondering if you can talk about what's bringing you joy in your life these days
0: joy is to be actually in my own home at this point <laughs> and um i i have a place in in the forest and i can actually look out and I have the long view over the mountains and, you know, that brings me deep joy. The other deep joy that I have is to be allowed <laughs> and privileged enough to be able to sit with people who want to change. That just deeply brings such a deep joy and, and you know, deep care and heart opening into my, into my life. It's just... It's just a miracle every time it happens. So that brings me deep joy.
1: You are perfectly vocationally aligned with what it seems like your soul's creative purpose is. And and I mean that. I'm not exaggerating when I say this. You know that, that Felina and I have had incredible mentors. We were able to spend quite a bit of time with Mother Teresa before she passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, we were able to be in conversation with Jean Vignet before he passed away. Yeah. And of course, Father Thomas Keating was one of our founding board members. Richard Rohr, again, is, is is an incredible mentor, but I, I I put you in that small circle of people who've changed everything for us, who've oh, given us well. um, new ways of of seeing and being and living faithfully. And so I'm indebted to you. I'm, I, I, I bow to you with honor and respect and, and deep admiration. And I'm so, so thankful for you. Thanks so much for the investments you've made in me. Thanks so much for this conversation. It's been so dense, but as always, you make these things so accessible. You make these things so human and so honest. Really, I want to honor you as one of the great guides of our time and one of the, the, the mentors who's made the deepest impact on my life. Thank you so much, Marianne.
0: Well, thank you. That seems to be way too much for for me to take in at this moment. So that's my work. But um, I feel like if I can make a small contribution, I feel very, very grateful for that. And Chris, you know, you're your being and your generosity of spirit and the way that you've served the world is, in my book, so amazing that you've been in all these places where great suffering is housing and, you know, the stories that you shared with me, um, I feel my contribution in that way is small compared to yours. So thank you for for doing that work and continuing to do
1: that. Thanks for saying that. Yeah. This has been fabulous. I'm so so grateful for you and your time. Thanks. It was
0: a it was a pleasure and an honor and thank you for making this possible.
1: There you have it. If you'd like to learn more about her work, you can visit her website mariongilbert.com. There you'll be able to learn a little bit about her certification program and the somatic awareness work that she's doing with the Enneagram. And, and I'll say this, this isn't for the lighthearted and this isn't something to, to sort of sign up and, and try to rush through. This is something to sit with. I have sat and, and, and studied with her for, for six or seven years. And the truth is, is, is I won't and, and I don't teach anything that I've learned from her. It, it's almost so sacred that this is something that you kind of want to keep for yourself and, and work on with yourself. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Enneagram Mapmakers. Special thanks to Ryan O'Neill for the gorgeous, as always, sleeping at last music and the gifted and talented genius that is Corey Pig for producing the show. And lastly, the sweet voice you hear helping at the beginning of the show is my dear friend Edith Moore all the way from Christchurch, New Zealand.